All right, good morning. How's everybody this morning? Y'all doing okay? You know, I, I'm really impressed. Um, I was talking to some friends this morning and I said, you know, I think we might have 200 people here this morning. And look at all these folks here. You know, I, I, I can't tell you how many people I talked to that were going on vacation this weekend or um, like my family, they're all with the Agape trip. So that's a host of, you should have seen how many kids we had. And by the way, we had to add an additional van and another trailer just to get them to Memphis. So that was cool. Yeah, super fun. And then I'm flying there Wednesday to help, you know, do whatever it is that they need me to. I don't know why they need me, but I'm going to go. Uh, maybe just encouragement. I don't know. It's a support. And then I've got to drive an entire bus full of teenagers in a big trailer back home. So you may be praying for me on Saturday because that's what I'll be doing. While you're on vacation, I'm going to be driving a bunch of teenagers in a trailer of luggage back from, from Memphis. So anyway, it'd be fun. Good to see you this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our series of Captive Life. Now, this morning, before we read our text together, I'm going to go ahead and give you, um, give you my, here's my, here's my one point. Just be honest, this is it. Um, so you can pack your bags and head out after I tell you. Um, but the one point that I want you to hear today is that a captive life is an all-consuming life. It's all-consuming. A captive life is all-consuming. It impacts every aspect of your life. And so whether that's um, your home life, whether that's your school life, whether that's work life, whether that's retirement life. By the way, I'm still trying to figure out what is retirement life. I, I, I keep hearing rumors of what that's like. Maybe one of these days I'll figure it out. Um, but no matter what aspect of life that you're in, whether that's, again, whether you're working, whether you're in school, whether you're in retirement, whatever season you're in, um, a captive life is a life that, that that, that centers Jesus through it all. And so my challenge for you today is to hear, as we read this text, as we read what God has to say for us this morning, is that you would see that a captive life is all-consuming. It impacts every nook and cranny of your life. And so we're gonna, I'm gonna ask everybody to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I've got two verses for you this morning. These two verses, quite frankly, summarize the book of Colossians. Um, that's why we're only doing two verses, because there's so much here in these two particular verses that I want you to see. As a matter of fact, it's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Um, but here's Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. This is Paul writing. This is the word of the Lord. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him established in the faith, just as you were taught, and notice what he says here, abounding in thanksgiving. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. You know, you probably know this by now because I talk about it all the time, but I love a good story, whether that's a movie, whether that's sitting with some friends and talking about life, whether that's a good book. I love a good story, but there's one thing about stories that I don't like. I'm one of those people who at the end of the story, I need it to come to a resolution. Like I need a finely tied bow on the end of that story. Like I don't want to walk away from the story going, man, I wonder what happened. Like I go into a story with this kind of idea of, man, I want to, I'm going to guess it and I want to figure it out before everybody else does. And so then at the end, when it's left blank, I go, well, 
nobody's right. And so then it takes all the, the fun out of it. So I love to have a good resolution, but there's one thing that I hate more than anything, and that's getting caught in this really good story. You feel like the story is coming to an end. You're going to get there, and there's, oh, man, it's building up to this thing, and then all of a sudden you get those dreaded words, to be continued. <laughs> Don't you hate that? And then you think, now I've got to wait for the next thing. And you know, our generation, we don't know what that's like, you know, because we're in the Netflix world. We're in the Hulu world where, you know, you can binge watch your show. You don't have to wait for the next week for it to come back. So you don't, you don't have to wait. And so when you get to hear those words to be continued, you think, no, no way. Right. Well, that's what Paul's doing here in this particular point of this text. You've got chapters one and half of chapter two are kind of like scene one. And then we're moving into scene two, and this particular, these two verses are kind of a summary of what we've talked about already. He uses the word therefore. We call that in the English language a conjunctive adverb. My English people, all of the students are gone, so they're not mad at me that I'm talking about English on Sunday morning. But it's a conjunctive adverb. But, but it's really important because what Paul's doing here with this word, therefore, is he's saying, in light of everything we've already talked about, therefore, do this. So again, it's a summary of everything that he's told us to do up until this point. He's now saying, therefore, because you know this, because you've heard this, now do this. And if you recall, Paul begins his letter in chapter one, if you flip back over in chapter one, in chapter one, he teaches us that a captive life is one that draws a line in the sand. It's one that, that, that decides, am I going to live for Christ or am I going to live for the world? You know, um, it's, in some ways, it's talking about competing worldviews. By the way, there's tons of competing worldviews that you and I face each and every day. And Paul's concern is, are you going to live by a biblical worldview, a truth worldview, or are you going to follow a false worldview? narrative of the world, a false worldview. And, and so he says, you got to draw a line in the sand that we're going to be people who follow Christ, not the world. In addition, Paul has invited us to swim in the deep end. Maybe you remember that I talked about, we need to pop the floaties and jump into the deep end. You remember that? We meet, meet Christ in the deep end. Uh, Matt did a beautiful job talking about how Christ needs to be the priority of our lives. Right? He's preeminent. He needs to be the first. He needs to be the center. He needs to be the last. He needs to be all-consuming in our lives. We need to build our lives on him. From there, we talked about how Christ has given us a mission, so to speak. Right? A couple weeks ago, we talked about uh, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, that, that our mission on this earth, no matter what season of life you're in, um, is to look up and look around to all the people that God has placed you in your life because he's placed you there for a particular mission in that particular season of life. And that mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. So whether that's somebody who needs to come to Christ, your job at that point ought to be to help them take their next step to Christ. Maybe that's to help them take their next step um, to join a church or to a Sunday school, or maybe it's just to simply sit down and have conversations with somebody who is um, really wrestling through, do I believe this at all? I mean, it's just a, it's a helpful summary for you and I to realize that God has placed us in this particular point of time to help people take their next step 
towards Christ. The week before that, we talked about how a captive life is a total makeover. That when Christ enters into your life, he begins to change your heart. And when Christ changes your heart, he exchanges that heart of of wood, of stone, that hard heart that we have prior to Christ. He gives you his spirit and that begins to transform you from the inside out. That begins to impact the way you think and the way you serve with your hands. Remember, I even made you, we even, we even did this whole thing of the, the heart, head, hands. You remember that? It's important because when Christ comes into your life, it changes everything. And then last week, Dr. Vassar did a great job as he, he, he reminded us of the beauty of the church. You know, the, the reality is we don't just come to church on a Sunday morning just to come to church on a Sunday morning. To do that would be a hobby, right? And, and to be honest, church is not a very good hobby. There's a lot of other things that you could do on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or a Sunday evening. And so, so why are we here? Well, we're here because this is the gathering of believers. We're here to encourage one another, to support one another, to be an extension of your family. In fact, this is your spiritual family. That's why the church is not a building, it's a people. I thought Dr. Vassar did a great job challenging us to, to be reminded that, that the church is a group of people who love the Lord, who love one another, and who are helping one another through the complexities and the craziness and the chaos of life. And boy, do we need the church today, right? But you know, it's funny. I hear people say, oh gosh, well, you know, the world's crazy. Well, it was crazy then too. For them, it was a crazy world and they needed the church just like you and I need the church today as well. It helps us navigate this complex world. Now, this morning, again, Paul is gonna carry these thoughts into a summary statement and he says, therefore, so now that you know all of that, he says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, he says, so walk in him. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, you may not know this if you're just reading through the book of Colossians, but this is the first command that Paul gives us in the book of Colossians. It's kind of interesting. So he's told us, hey, here's all these things in chapter one and then the first part of chapter two, and then boom, hits you with the command. And he says, so now that you know all of these things, therefore, walk in him, walk in him. Paul's desire is that everything that we have learned about Jesus is not just something that we know, but it's something that we embody. So what we've heard in chapter one, and then again, in the first part of chapter two, Paul's desire is not that this be something that we just just know about, that we've learned, but it's something that we embody. It can't be just a theory. It's gotta be, it's, it's gotta be practiced in life. That's Paul's deepest concern in the, book of Colossians is that you and I would, well, honestly, we would practice what we preach. We would live the truths of God's word. Let me illustrate it this way. Maybe think of room this size. There's probably a lot of you who grew up. Did y'all go to GAs, RAs? Y'all remember those things? Yeah. Training union. Y'all remember training union? Right. Um, Young people think Awanas. Okay, trying to bridge all the generations here. Um, so, so Sunday school, Sunday morning worship, right? We grew up doing these things. And part of that was Bible study, Bible drill. Anybody remember doing Bible drill? Where are my competitive people? Yep, I know, I love it. I love it. I was one of you. I was one of you. Yeah, so Bible drill, memorizing scripture, going to Bible studies. Listen, all of those things are great. But here's, 
Here's the, here's the trouble with some of that stuff. The trouble is, is that we can go about life and we can do all those things. We can memorize scripture. We can attend Bible studies. But if they don't actually impact our lives, well, what's the point? You know, I think it's great that we put the Bible in front of people and especially in kids and we challenge them and VBS is what we're going to do. We're going to challenge them to memorize their Bible, to learn Bible stories and all of those things. But gosh, we've got to do a, a, a good job of helping them take the truth of scripture and apply it to their life. You know, right now there's this kind of this group of, they're calling them the, the rise of the nuns. The rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, N-O-N-E-S. It's the rise of the nuns. And here's, here's, here's who these people are. They're young people who are walking away from the church. And, and the reason why they're described as the nuns is because they're the people who, who don't really believe in anything. They're not necessarily atheists. They're probably more agnostic. They're just like, well, well what's the point? And so I've, I've spent a lot of time reading about these people. Well, how did, how did they get here? All of those things, just trying to understand. And a lot of Christian sociologists have, have really nailed it down. And, and I think they're right. Um, and this, this might be tough. So just take it with grace, okay? It's not that these folks weren't raised in the church. It's not that these folks weren't told that this is important. The reason why so many people are walking away from the church is because while they went to church and while they maybe were raised in homes that believed these things, they weren't lived out. And so they grew up in homes where their moms and dads and grandparents honestly didn't really live the Bible. They went on Sunday mornings, went on Wednesday nights, Sunday evenings, memorized a bunch of Bible, but it never really impacted their life. And so they've, well, what's the point? I mean, if it didn't transform them, why in the world give my life to this thing? Why, why give to this? Why attend these things? If, if they're not going to transform me, then it doesn't really seem like there's much of a point. By the way, they all seem kind of miserable. Why do they seem so hypocritical? Why do they seem so judgmental? They don't seem really grateful. They don't seem happy. They just... That's, that's, that's what these folks are running from. And so what Paul is saying here is he says, hey, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, he's, he's calling us now to walk in him. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command to, for us to walk in him. To, to walk in him first and foremost, means that, that we've had an identity change. To walk in Christ, to be in Christ, means that our identity is, is different. Prior to Christ, your identity was a child of wrath. Prior to Christ, your identity was to be dead, spiritually dead. Prior to Christ means that you had no hope and you were a stranger and a foreigner to, to God. You were separated and cut off, right? So over here in Christ, you, you're now a, a son or a daughter in Christ. Um, while you were a stranger or foreigner, you've been brought near. There's no need for a priest. There's no need for Old Testament sacrifices anymore because now, because I'm in Christ, God looks at me as he would Christ. That on the cross, he went to the cross on your behalf. He measured up in a way that you never could and, 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 
and even on your best day, right? And so because of Christ doing that for you and my acceptance of him, my receiving of that, I now stand in Christ, which means I'm fundamentally a different person. Now here's kind of the trick, right? So if my identity is to be in Christ, that means everywhere I go, I need to be in Christ. Are you following my logic? So whether I go to work, whether I go to school, my neighborhood, my vacation, wherever it is that I go, I am to walk in Christ. Now, here's kind of the trouble. The trouble is this thing called compartmentalization. It's a big word. Compartmentalization. See, what happens is, is that oftentimes we build our lives into compartments, don't we? You know, and compartments aren't always bad. It's not always a bad thing. But when it comes to our Christian faith, it's a terrible thing. Because what we do is we become a different person wherever it is that we go. We take our identity in Christ and we leave it for Sunday morning or Wednesday night or Sunday evening. But then at work, we go about life however we want to. So maybe we hear a sermon on Sunday morning and then we get to Monday morning and then we just kind of go about life per usual. Here's a test. You can be honest, it's not gonna hurt my feelings, okay? How many of you can honestly say, you're not gonna hurt my feelings, okay? How many of you can honestly say that by three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, you remember what I preached on? No, none of y'all, a few of you? (laughs) Come on, okay, you did hurt my feelings. All right, I want you to think about this. I want you to be real honest here because this happens to me all the time. It's fair. Look, we're all human. Even we're all human. Okay, so you have, a, you have a quiet time on Monday morning. By noon, how many, are, how many of you are going like, oh man, I need, gosh, as I receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, right? When I'm in traffic, I'm fighting traffic, which by the way, there's way too much traffic in Belton right now. Or we'll, or wherever you're at, or you have that weird conversation at work or whatever, and you're like, nope, nope, oh, as I receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How many of you can say, oh yeah, that's, that's me, I do that. I think so often, right? Like we, we get up early and we have a quiet time, but by noon, we've completely forgotten what we read or what we memorized that morning because we just compartmentalize our lives. And again, what Paul is saying here is he's pushing us away from that to a holistic kind of Christianity. He's helping us see that a captive life to Jesus is a life that is all-consuming. It impacts every area of our lives. When I think about this, I think about my, our first house in Fort Worth. Um, it was an awesome house, primarily because it was our first house. Um, and it, it was a house of firsts. You know, it was our first home. And we, you know, we did our typical you know, seasons of life. So, so we buy our first house, we get our first dog, right? You got to have your first dog to make sure you're ready for your, for kids. I don't know why. I don't know. It's fine. So we get our first dog and, you know, we do that whole thing. And, and then from there, we, we bring Lane home. He's our first kiddo. I mean, it's a special house, but, but this house was built in 1960, which means it's a ranch style home. Everybody know that? Y'all watched Fixer Upper, you know what a ranch style home is? 
So here's what that meant, right? So you, you would walk up to this home and on the front of it had this big, beautiful porch, which was awesome. We loved that, spent a lot of time out there. And you would open up the door and as you walked in the door, you were, were met in a hallway. So you open up the door, there, there's your hallway. And then that hallway would lead you to the right to what's called a formal dining room. A formal dining room. I'm sure there's a reason for that. At some point, there was a reason to have a formal dining room. I don't think we were ever in there, but maybe five times in the four years that we had that house. And so you go to the formal living room. And then from there, the hallway would kind of sneak you into the kitchen. And then you'd you'd be in the kitchen. And then from there, you would go to the, I guess, casual living room. If this is formal, that's got to be casual, right? Is that, is that the way it is? And that would take you to the back, you know, back patio, the backyard, and then you'd go down another hallway to the, to the bathrooms and to the bedrooms and all that kind of stuff. But, but what it did is, is it broke up your home in such a way that this is where we eat, this is where we play, this is where we're formal, <laughs> right? This is where we sleep, and it broke our homes into these compartments. Now we have this open floor plan concept where like everything's a party. You know, there's, there's no hall. We don't have a single hallway in our house. It's the strangest thing. You just walk right in and it's like, well, there it is. There's the chaos. Welcome, you know. Um, but I think what happens is oftentimes we, we live our lives kind of like a 1960s ranch style home where we build out these compartments where this is where I go to work. This is where I play. This is where I have friend time. This is where I vacation. This is where I do all of my things. But yet Christ never impacts those compartments. And and the the, the kind of strange thing about all that is if, if my identity is in Christ and that's true of me, then I would think it would make sense to walk in him in each of those compartments. Right? The idea of walking in Christ, this picture of walking, means that everywhere I go, wherever I inhabit, I ought to walk in Christ. His influence ought to, ought to pour out of me, pour into me and pour out of me. It's, it's an entirely new way of looking at the world. Now, here's what's really cool. In verse seven, Paul gives us some word pictures. Anybody like word pictures? I like a good word picture because I look down, I see all this text and I'm a little slower than most. And so I I need a good picture. So, So here's the picture that Paul gives us. In verse seven, he says, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith. In other words, to walk in him simply means to be established in the faith. And to be established in the faith means to be rooted and built up in him. So you've got these two word pictures, right? You've got this idea of being rooted and then you've got this idea of being built. Now to be rooted kind of makes me think of of nourishment, right? It speaks of the idea of being nourished. And I don't know about you, but right now what's consuming my mind is my yard. Anybody? Yeah. It's just, it's a, I just love it, man. You get out there, you get to mow, make it green, clean up the edges. It's like the only thing I do where I get to see immediate results. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And so I'm thinking about my yard a lot right now. And so as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking about nourishment. 
And I've got this love-hate relationship with St. Augustine Grass. Anybody relate to that? So on one end, I love it because at the right time, in the right conditions, with the right amount of water, boy, that thing, boy, it flourishes. It's thick, it's green, it's got good fertilizer. Boy, it is, oh, it's great. But might I remind you that I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old and a 90-pound lab. See, on one end, it's great because in the right conditions, right soil content, right fertilizer, right amount of water, boy, it's great. On the other end, it's the most temperamental grass you'll ever have in your life. If it gets too much water, it dies. If it doesn't get enough water, it dies. If you play on it too much, it dies. It is temperamental and it drives me absolutely nuts. And honestly, it's kind of the source of a lot of Jordan and I's strife, but we're not gonna go there. Y'all are not my counselor. We're fine. We're fine. But the picture is that Paul, he's painting for us that when our roots are receiving the right nourishment, we ought to thrive in any and all conditions. And so whether the heat comes and it scorches us or gosh, maybe we just feel beat down with the traffic of life or man, we're just consumed and overwhelmed, flooded with hard things in life. He says, when you make Christ the source of your nourishment, he says, you ought to be able to thrive in any and all circumstances. And so my question, I think I was thinking about this week is, is, is where are you receiving your nourishment? Are you receiving your nourishment from Christ? Right, are you looking for, are your, are your roots, I don't know why I'm doing this, I guess because roots make me think this. Are your roots sinking down deep into the soil of Christ or are they shriveling up and dying? You know, in, in the world right now, there's this, there's this, um, <laughs> there's this thing called self-care. Maybe you've, maybe you've heard of that. The idea of self-care is if, if, I, if I, you know, take enough time for myself, if I work out, if I eat right, if I do these things, then I will, ha- I will experience a happy and whole life. Um, it's kind of this answer to the burnout that we see in so many different people right now. It's just, well, if I, if I do these things, well, then I'll be happy, whole, I'll thrive and all that kind of stuff. And the more and the more that I've been thinking about that, I said, you know, that's, that's not a bad thing. It's not bad to take good care of yourself, to eat right. By the way, we should all do that. We should be good stewards of the body that God has given us. By the way, the, our bodies are the temple of the spirit. And if they're the temple of the spirit, um, we ought to take good care of our, of our bodies, right? So that's, that's a good thing. But I think it falls short. And here's what it falls short of. What you and I actually need is not self-care, we need soul care. And there's a, there's a really big difference. And the difference is, is that I can go to a Barnes and Nobles. If you, I don't know, how many people have gone to a Barnes and Nobles in the last year? Okay, so for y'all, you could go to a Barnes and Nobles. For everybody else, you could look on Amazon. Um, and what you'd see is that there are tons and tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of books and literature on how you do this self-care stuff. This is cool. But there's only one book. There's only one book that's lasted over 2,000 years that can care for your soul. You tell me, which one works? I mean, I, you don't have to be a genius to figure that out. Right? You don't have to read 
all of those books to figure out that at the end of the day, what you and I need is that we need intimacy with God through his word. And it doesn't matter how much you run. It doesn't matter how well you eat. It doesn't matter how much sleep you get. It doesn't matter how much self time you get. What we truly need, what every one of us needs is to get away and have intimate time with the Lord via his word. We need to hear from him. We need to sit with him. We need to dine with him, so to speak. And, and here's the deal. If it was good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for us. Right? So often you see Jesus getting away from the noise, getting away from the crowds to get by himself, only he's not by himself. He's with the Father. Over and over and over again, you see Jesus pointing us the way toward a captive life, a, a life of intimacy, a life of meaning and value. And that meaning and value won't come from all of these trends, but it's going to come from the only thing that's tried and true, and that is to get alone with him and to spend time with him in his word. So he talks about this idea of being rooted, but then he also talks about, as a second word picture, of being built up in him. Of course, when I think about being built, I think about foundation. Think about foundation. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, what is my foundation? What is your foundation? Have you thought about that? What's the foundation of your life? It reminds me of Jesus' famous parable in Matthew 7. Here's what he says. We did this in our Sermon on Mount series, but just to remind you, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house. But hear this, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Now notice what Jesus says here. He says, for the one who hears and then does is the one who had built his life on the rock. So it's not just hearing, but it's doing. It's, it's an all-consuming kind of thing. It's, it spills over into every aspect of our life that we, we, we read God's word, we memorize it, we, we feast on it, so to speak, and then we practice it in our lives. And for the one who hears, sits, reads, learns, uh, memorizes, and who then practices that in their life, that is the person who, is, who has built their life on the rock. The latter, for the one who just hears, Jesus says, is like the one who built his life on the sand. The floods came, the winds blew, and guess what? Lost its foundation. Lost its foundation. Our foundation has to be on the rock. He even speaks of this idea of the rock. It's an idea of being an immovable force. I think what Jesus is offering us is the opportunity, hear this, to daily build our lives on an immovable force. Again, there's these competing worldviews that are trying to draw your attention to follow after them. But here's the deal. To follow after them is like trying to shoot a moving target. You ever tried to shoot a moving target? It's really tough. And so I think oftentimes, by the nature of the culture that we live in, we we're always looking for the next fad, looking for the next thing. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. There is no next thing. I am the thing. Follow me. Trust me. Build your life on me. And you won't have to worry about these moving targets because I don't move. I've stayed the same. Remember this? Uh, today, tomorrow, and for all of eternity, I am the same. Trust me. Follow me. Build your life on me. Now, here's what's, what's pretty cool. 
In the latter part of verse 7, Paul gives us an indicator of whether or not we're walking in Christ. Isn't that great? Does anybody else like to know, am I doing it right? Like, am I, am I, am I doing this thing right? Well, he, he helps us with that. He, he even kind of gives us the, the, the dashboard light, the warning light, whether we are or whether we aren't. And he, he does it again in verse, the end of verse 7. He says, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. And here it is, abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in gratitude. To abound means to overflow with thanksgiving, overflow with gratitude. A life of walking with Christ built on him, finding its nourishment in him is a life abounding in thanksgiving. I'm so thankful that Paul uses this kind of dramatic phrase, abounding. He's wanting you to see that it's not just a life of thanksgiving, but it's a life of overflowing thanksgiving. It's a life of overflowing gratitude. And listen, here's the deal, right? When tough things happen, those are tough things. When a loved one passes away, that's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. When you lose a job, that's a hard thing. When you have a wayward child, that's a hard thing. Life is hard. Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell. And it's not, again, not the kind of prisons that you and I are accustomed to. This is brutal. And Paul says that a life that is walking in Christ is a life that abounds, overflows in gratitude, no matter what we face. Listen, a life hidden in Christ is, that's the only life that is capable of producing this kind of thanksgiving and this kind of gratitude in a life of hardships and brokenness and disease and disaster and all the filth of the world. It's a life walking in Christ. One author, he, speaking of Thanksgiving, he says this. I love the wording he uses. He says, to be bursting with Thanksgiving or thankfulness is a true witness of the spirit of God within us. For the voice of Thanksgiving speaks without ceasing of the goodness of God. It claims nothing. It sees no merit in man's receiving, but only in God's giving. It marvels at his mercy. It is the language of joy just because it feels no need to look to its own resources. It's an expression of dependence on another. Um, Dr. Vassar mentioned Tim Keller and his passing over the last, last week. He, he mentioned that last week, but man, I've been thinking a lot about him. He's been a major influence in my life over the years. I've read probably all of his books and have just really appreciated him. Um, but one of the things that, that Tim has reminded me of is the power of the gospel. The fact that there is nothing that I did to earn or even to receive the blessing that God has given me in Christ. It is purely an act of God's mercy and his grace that he would ever see me, look on me, have mercy to me and extend his grace to me. And, and he was talking about, you know, if I had one advice that I would give anybody, specifically pastors, he would, he would say this. He said, I would never get over the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He says, I see all of this talk and I read all these things about successful ministry and what does it look like to have a successful ministry? And he said, listen, I would tell you, to a young pastor, I would tell congregants, don't ever get over the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life because that ought to be enough 
That ought to be enough for us to have gratitude in all of our lives. And as Dr. Vassar mentioned last week, because Jesus has resurrected from the dead and because I am in him, there's always hope. There's always hope for you. There's always hope for me that this is not it for us. And so while we want to compartmentalize our lives and build our lives on the things that this world offers, it's a reminder, it's a reminder that there's hope outside of these things, that when they don't satisfy us, when that vacation doesn't satisfy us and we need a vacation for our vacation, or when the amount of money that we have in our bank doesn't satisfy us, or, or that job or that girl or that guy or this relationship or that child doesn't satisfy us, these are reminders that ought to lead us back to the truth that at the end of the day, my name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And because that is true, everything's gonna be okay. And I can have great hope. You can have great hope this morning if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And isn't that great? That is such a powerful truth for you and for me to be reminded of as we consider a captive life and how it's all consuming. That truth doesn't just stay here. It travels with you on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace this morning. God, I'm thankful that while our sins are many, your mercy is more. Lord, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. That while we were children of wrath going our own way, Father, you sent Jesus to intersect our path and you have given us a new identity. We are new creations in you. And this is an identity that that ought not to be lived out on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening or a Wednesday night, but ought to be carried with us throughout our week. Lord, help us to walk in you to walk in your spirit, to follow him as he leads us, as he guides us, as he navigates us through the complexities of life. God, help us to live a consistent life that is grateful and that is content in all that you have done and provided for us in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.